Scripture from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Today I want to talk about the issue, uh, about a series of issues related to race. I believe there are some very important aspects of, of these issues, uh, but unfortunately a lot of these issues seem to be getting overshadowed by uh, political discussion, protests have turned to riots, horrible police incidences have led to cries to defund the police. We're fighting in this country over our monuments and the names of schools and army bases. Demonstrations have been made against the flag and therefore offended those who see the flag as a symbol of their service to the, this country. This has infiltrated our sports and been co-opted by our politicians. And I fear that some of the things that God is bringing to us to in these issues are being boxed out by these other trappings. I believe that there are other elements of the issue of race that we need to look at as Christians in America. So what I'd like to do is sort of sidestep those other issues and, and with some tenderness and grace, try to wrestle with what God may be teaching us through these issues and through this in the, in the midst of this mess. Let's begin by saying that in the Bible, all people are made in the image of God. All people, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter what language they speak, we are each our brother and sister's keeper. And in the end, we read in Revelation, people from every nation and tongue, okay, people from every ethnicity, every race, are going to bow before God and praise Him. And they don't leave their race at the door. They don't leave their language at the door. They come and they praise Him in a, in a beautiful symphony, okay, where, where it's not just the melody, but, but we're actually... Um, harmonizing with each other. Africa plays a particularly important role in the Bible, believe it or not. Um, there are references to African areas of Cush and Sheba and Ethiopia. Abraham had an Egyptian concubine. Some African people left Egypt and went with Israel to the Promised Land. Moses marries a Cushite woman. The bride of Solomon is called black and beautiful in Song of Solomon's 1.5. David has a trusted Cushite in his royal court. So if you, you go back and read the Old Testament, you find actually a lot of reference to, uh, to uh, African cultures. A lot of these people would have been black and would have related to, uh, you know, been one of David's trusted men. Jesus himself dealt with the issue of race. Let me first remind you, and this is kind of important for us to hear, that Jesus was not white. Although our pictures of him, he's white, but he was not white. Okay, He was Middle Eastern, and he was Middle Eastern in a time where probably skin's, skin was even darker because of travel and things. And then he moves uh, in his childhood to flee uh, from Israel, and he, where does he go to? He goes to Egypt, probably staying with relatives in Egypt. That means Jesus has Egyptian, African relatives, many of whom were probably black Jews. 
Jesus was never in America. He was never in Rome. He didn't spend time in Europe. He didn't spend time in Africa. Simon the Cyrene, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross, well, the Cyrenes, they're from North Africa. Okay, and he was very likely a black Jew who was there to, for Jerusalem to Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay, that means a black man actually carried the cross of Jesus. People from every nation were converted at Pentecost, including African people, and and we know of at least one, and an Ethiopian eunuch that is saved in Acts eight. He was the treasurer of Candace, the queen of mother uh, queen mother of nubia we don't know you may have not heard about nubia but for a long time nubia was a major christian nation in africa yet yet all these biblical realities about the relationship of jews and africa and even black jews and in uh, in the bible have not stopped people from hating each other all these issues of, of loving your brother and caring, everybody made in the image of God. People have still hated and despised one another. And in fact, unfortunately, the Bible has been used in some ways to justify this kind of hatred over time. In the New World here, uh, in North and South America, and especially in the Southern United States, black people from Africa were sold into slavery and brought here. The economy of this new nation would be, in great part, based on people being treated as less than human. They were bought and sold. Many died in terrible conditions as they were transported to the Americas. Their families were torn apart, and these men and women had no means of earning their freedom or demanding fair treatment. They were property, and they would always remain property. It's a certain irony that the first black slaves that arrived in the colonies in 1616 arrived on a ship named after John the Baptist. Many people who use the Bible, many people use the Bible to justify these atrocities. They spoke of those being black as those having the mark of Cain from Genesis. They quoted about slaves obeying their masters in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy 6. Now, in reality, when Paul's talking about slavery and slaves obeying their masters, he wasn't thinking anything like anti antebellum slavery. Okay, in those days, uh, slaves could earn their freedom; they weren't necessarily treated like property. Uh, it was not racially driven, not really dehumanizing, not abusive or, or kidnapped. Now, it certainly could be at times, uh, but but we get Paul's letter to uh, to Philemon where he encourages Philemon, and he doesn't press him but sort of subtly suggests that he should free Onesimus. Certainly, I don't think Paul would have stood for the kind of slavery that was happening here and around the world. But that did not stop slave owners from quoting Paul's words as they whipped their slaves. A Virginia assembly declared in 1667 the following. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of any person as to his bondage of freedom. Hey, think about the, the blurring of church and state here. That in a Virginia assembly would make a rule that just because you became a Christian and got baptized doesn't mean you get to be free. You remain a slave. Amazingly, Though the Christian faith stood by as slavery happened and was even used to justify slavery, that same faith 
was important to those slaves. It was part of how they survived. We still have a, a number of those in, the, in our hymnals. They're called Negro Spirituals, which reflect themes of hope and of freedom. Part of how those slaves got along was finding the faith. In the 1800s, there was a growing critique and a resistance to this Christian justification of slavery. Slavery was abolished in England in 1800 and in just about all of the rest of the British Empire with the Salvation or the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Out of this resistance actually comes our church. Okay, so Northminster Church uh, was, was started by people who were wrapped up in these issues originally. By the 1940s, Joseph S. White of Newcastle, actually it was before it was even Newcastle, was our area's conductor for the Underground Railroad. So, so slaves that were getting away from slavery in the South would come through here on their way up towards Lake Erie where they could find freedom. His brick home on the northwest corner of Grant Street and Jefferson Street became an important stop on the journey. Joseph White was very outspoken about the abolition of slavery, saying that it was not just a political issue, but also a religious one. But that was hard for the church to get around, get their heads wrapped around. The church in America struggled with what to do with slavery. In 1845, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church approved a statement that domestic slavery in the circumstances in which it exists in the southern portion of the country is no bar to Christian communion. In other words, if you own slaves, you can still have communion in our churches. This really angers those who oppose slavery and see it as wrong. The challenge is not just in the church. In 1950, President Millard Fillmore signs the Fugitive Slave Law, requiring citizens to assist slave owners in recovering slaves. This becomes a challenge for Christians as well. I mean, aren't we supposed to listen to our authorities? Hey, Paul's pretty clear on that. You, you're supposed to listen to those and be subject to those who are put in authority over you. You can look at Romans 13 to, uh, to see that. So at that point, the underground railroad is illegal. So should we follow our, our faith that says people should be free? Or do we follow the scripture directly when it says that uh, we're supposed to listen to our authorities? It's caused a lot of tension in a lot of churches, particularly in this area. And so Joseph White and several others petitioned their Presbyterian church to leave the denomination and form a new church. When they are denied, they leave, they, they leave to start their own church. Eventually, they would build a building on a small frontage on the square, now called the Diamond, in the growing downtown of what, what became Newcastle. The building opened in 1859. 1859. So the history of our church relates to this. The history of our church is one that, that when you look back, you can see how some Christians were complicit in the allowance and the, in the action of slavery. And that some Christians were fighting against that. And out of that came our church and a number of other churches in our area. From 1861 to 1865, so that started two years after our church built its building down there on the Diamond, the United States fought the Civil War, as southern states fought to secede from the Union and maintain the use of black slaves. President Lincoln declares all slaves to be free in 1862 with the Emancipation Proclamation, but the fighting does not end for several more years. So yay, 
win for the world. Slavery was defeated. But then our nation had to be rebuilt. And what would happen to the 3.5 million slaves that were freed in these efforts? Some tried to stay in the south and make lives for themselves there. Others came to the north. There was this influx of, of freed men and freed women that would, would come and try to find work. But they didn't have any education. They had not a lot to go on. Many black people struggled to find their place in the world. And racism continued. Just because we fought a war and the government said people could be free doesn't mean everybody is still treated as equal and everybody is welcome. Some still saw them as less than people. This racism generally took different forms for the North than it did in the South. In the South, black people were actively pushed down and kept out. There were rules at restaurants and drinking fountains and buses. Um... These, among many, were known as the, uh, collectively as the Jim Crow laws, named after a caricature meant to make fun of black people. In the North, though, this is so important for us to understand, racism was so much more subtle. The idea was much more calm and a, a sense of separate but equal. Okay, the idea was if, if you black people stay over there, you can stay. Or if you act right and dress right really for what a lot of people black people have described it over the years if you sound white and you act white you can stay here fall in line don't cause a fuss the assumption was that white thinking was dominant and normal way the normal way of thinking uh, we could talk about this a number of ways but let, let's just look at a couple first we might think about black culture or elite latino culture you sort of expect that black culture or Latino culture has music, dress, language, cuisine, a cultural heritage. Do you think about being white as having a heritage like that? I mean, it's difficult because, uh, because you know, I have relatives that are very German and very English and uh, uh, very Scotch-Irish. You know, those are all different. But, but we do. We bring some of those cultures, and they're sort of a hodgepodge now, but we have our own cultural distinctives. Um, we have our own expectations of behavior and language. We just don't even realize it sometimes because we think ours is so normal. For another example, you learned uh, America and world history from a predominantly American and European perspective. Do you even know much Asian history? Do you know much African history? When I talk about Nubia in this sermon, the one of the, the great nations to ever come out of Africa, have you even heard of Nubia? Or do you know mainly European and American history? This past week was Columbus Day. You probably learned. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean, view, ocean blue. And what did he do? So many people will say he discovered America. Discovered America? There were already people living here when he quote-unquote discovered America. That'd be like me saying I discovered Ohio last week. This was our... Can you imagine indigenous people from our nation telling in their history books that Christopher Columbus in 1492 came over and discovered our native lands? I mean, that's a very... Anglo, white, European perspective to put on that history. Now, now I don't want to say, 
what that means for how we celebrate Columbus Day or not, I mean, I think Columbus did some important things and did some really brave things. I think we just need to acknowledge the uh, the double-edged sword that that is and that we're used to hearing history from a predominantly white perspective. In addition to seeing white culture and white history as normative, there were active ways in which white in which black people were kept separate. Stuff like the 1934 National Housing Act, which allowed banks to develop maps to create secure neighborhoods. This, this was called redlining. Okay? And what they would do is they would take a map and they would redline, and basically they wouldn't give loans to anyone who was black or any kind of minority trying to move into those areas. Okay? They kept the areas white. Um... Again, we can think about Northminster's history and see this trend on the ground. Northminster was at the center of town and therefore was called Central Presbyterian Church. Our church fathers had our church fathers and mothers had been part of the Underground Railroad, which means they cared a great deal for freed men and freed women. And uh, some of our church members to this day can still remember some diversity in Northminster Church. Black when we had an elder who was black. We had families who participated. But because of a fire and because of some changes and needing to get a different property, Northminster made the move from the Diamond downtown out to this country uh, swampland to the north of the city. And they, because they were moving to the north, they became Northminster. But you know what? Some of those black families that were part of the church couldn't make it up the hill. Some didn't make it up the hill. And what we didn't know, what they could not have known when they made this change, was that around Northminster would become this really nice area with nicer homes, higher income, with a good school that would become Nishanik. And I know from when I came to get to interview for this job, Nishanik does not see itself as part of Newcastle. Okay, It wants to have a different address on your, on your stamps or on your envelopes. It doesn't see itself the same. What we see in our community and around our church is still this separation. Martin Luther King Jr. called the most segregated hour of this nation Sunday at 11 a.m. And so the diversity that we had as a church, we don't have anymore. We didn't mean to do that. I don't think that the church was was to kind of do it, but, but we were ahead of Kind of a white flight and a very different change to our community. And unfortunately, that means our church does not have and reflect the full kingdom of God. We don't have the same kind of diversity we used to have. And that's worth mourning. Through the 50s and 60s, the civil rights movement made progress in helping black people find greater acceptance and equality. The sermons of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and the demands for action by people like Malcolm X energized a generation to demand changes. A lot of you lived through those and maybe even marched in some of those causes. Certainly things got better. Jim Crow laws were, for the most part, repealed. Issues were at least talked about more. But as Malcolm X was killed in 1965 and Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968, there was still work left undone. What's worse, many in the black community moved away from their Christian faith. Having, been burned, having felt burned by that faith, 
that had been used to justify the hatred against them and their relatives. The sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. are not talked about anymore as sermons, but speeches. They don't have, most of the rhetoric now does not have the same kind of biblical basis. They have lost touch with the, the many in the movement have lost touch with the prophets that, that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used as the background. In fact, Christianity is seen as now a white man's religion. Okay, and so you, you're more likely to see black people who convert to Islam, who convert to Judaism even, than you do Christianity. And this causes a major problem in the black church. So if you want to read more about this, read, Is Christianity a White Man's Religion? by Antipas Harris. Um, and so I, 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 I've been, and through all this research and thinking about this this summer, I've been praying for black churches that they would find some leverage on this. Now look, not all these issues boil down to race. Okay, the challenge is that issues of race are entwined, intertwined with all kinds of other issues, like poverty. Many of the communities that remain predominantly black in the aftermath of the 1934 Housing Act remain poor. This poverty means lots of people have challenges. Lower income housing often means renting properties. One of the one of the owning a home is one of the best ways to build your value. And if you live generation and generation and generation. Uh, in a rental home, you're not building value for your family. Poorer communities are likely to have poorly funded schools. Kids in these poor communities are less likely to go to college, especially when most of their family members did not go to college. In these kind of communi communities, you get more crime, you get more drugs. So these issues are very complicated, and, and they go beyond race. But you understand there's still some division related to race. Race is not determinative. Race doesn't say how, what you are or what you're not. But, but in some ways, the fact is that depending on who, you, what household you were born in, what color your skin is, you may get better opportunities or more opportunities than if you didn't. People are responsible for their own actions. Yes. But the fact is that my children, as white children going to Nishanik, have a distinct advantage and they're going to have more opportunities than some of the other families do in our community. Poorer communities often have understaffed, underpaid, and undertrained police forces. Now, according to the statistics, racially motivated police violence is not high. Okay, police shootings uh, tend to happen both ways, and a lot of the police officers that work in black communities re re reflect the race of the communities they work in. But it is just true uh, that, there, that policing is uneven and has bad records on some of these things. Um, people do need to be respectful to the police, but I, I will never forget talking to a pastor friend of mine who had adopted a black son. He told me that his son was, uh, a, high, was a senior in high school. He was 18 years old and uh, a, a good player on the basketball team. And, uh, but that his son had been pulled over in double digits. At the time, it was something like 12 times his son, his pastor's son, had been pulled over just on suspicion. 12 times in high school. How often were you pulled over during your high school years? I was not pulled over like that in high school. Ralph Lowe, who works for the Pittsburgh Presbytery, wrote a blog after the George Floyd killing. 
Now, I know Ralph a little bit, not real well, but, but he wrote about teaching his sons how to act if the police ever pull you over so the situation doesn't escalate, so that you don't give them any reason to have any doubt. Look, my dad did not have to have that conversation with me. Now, I want to say, I think most police officers have a hard job. I've known a lot of cops over the years. A lot of them take it seriously. A lot of them do it well. But at the same time, I hear the cry of my brothers and sisters who are black and living in fear of the people who are supposed to be their helpers. I hold both of those in tension and see both sides. I mean, isn't this what it all comes down to? Fear. So many people are afraid of people who are different. And I am angered by the bold and open action of white supremacy groups. Uh, I'm concerned about the increased fear of Muslims in our country. And I'm, I'm, I see a growing amount of anti-Semitism in our country. Um, fear and hate seem to be on the rise. And not just on the rise, they seem to be tools of people who are trying to get their agenda. Because how do we respond well, whenever race is talked about or yelled about or protested about in another country, the goal seems to be guilt. So much works about feeling guilty. Feeling guilty about being white or being at least culpable in current racial tensions. But I love how J Jamar Tisby talks about this in his excellent book, The Color of Compromise. What he says is the goal should not be guilt. The goal should be godly grief. Okay? Uh, I'm a... I'm aware that you and I have not owned slaves. May, many of us have, done, have not done anything in particular to put down anyone who is black. But, but I think this whole situation should grieve us. That there are brothers and sisters, that I have neighbors, that I have friends that feel this way. Um, I think it should lead us to grief. To what the Bible calls lament. We should be sad about this. It should break our hearts that we are where we are. And we should start looking to God for answer. We need to lament that our world doesn't look like the kingdom of God should. And our church doesn't look like our king, the kingdom of God should. And then where we should feel guilty, I pray the Holy Spirit does uh, be our conscience and make us feel guilty. It should mourn us. That people have to put up signs that say that black lives matter. And Christians are quick to say, but all lives matter. Yeah, but not all lives feel like they matter. And that should cause us to lament. To be honest, I, I'm not sure what to do with this reality. I have no clue what our country needs to do about it. I've been praying about what our church needs to do about it. I just don't know about that either. I don't know how we can make better bridges in our community. But, but here's what I know. When Jesus starts to work in this world, it work, he works first and foremost through the hearts of his people. Where this is going to start is in the mirror you got to look in the mirror and look at your own heart and look at your own attitudes look at our, and evaluate our own prejudices. What goes through your mind when you see someone who's black, see someone who's disabled, see someone who looks Muslim or Jewish in the grocery store? Like, what's your, what's your first thoughts? How do you want to respond to that? Like, let's start with our own hearts. Let's start with our own mind. Let's, let's reflect on how uh, we have benefited from our own little Anglo fishbowl. How do we seek more diversity in our lives? How can we not just get upset about racism, but live lives of anti-racism? Where we're actively working to put those things down 
How can we live lives of the love of Jesus? There's a lot in this sermon. So may the Holy Spirit guide you to the places that you need to ponder and consider and pray about. Amen.